This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Brexit or not, Germany and France remain indisputably Britain's most important European frenemies. And Germany especially is in flux since the end of the Merkel era. But one of the unfortunate side effects of the recent bin fire that is UK politics has been to suck the oxygen out of world news when it comes to reporting. News from the continent especially is rarely reported in an informative way. Everything is filtered through a nationalist Brexit prism. Difficulties magnified and triumphs silenced. My guest today is here to put this right and give us a frank update on Germany. Annette Dittert is a multi-award winning filmmaker, author and journalist. She has been correspondent for major German news outlets for many years and recently, since returning to her adopted home in London, <laughs> she has become an increasingly important voice in this country too, especially with her New Statesman columns. Welcome to The Bunker, Annette Dittert. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's so nice to have you. Right. Can you, first of all, give us a sort of very brief portrait of the new Chancellor, Olaf Scholz? <laughs> uh, it's not easy to do that very briefly, but I'll try my <laughs> best. <laughs> um, Scholz has come to power in a way by imitating Merkel, Angela Merkel, even by imitating her famous hand gestures like the Raute, as we say it in German, like mm -hmm. putting both hands together, by promising to be a steady hand, no surprises, something the Germans like very much, as you might know or have heard of. Since he's become chancellor, he's, he's more Merkelian than she was herself, meaning <laughs> he's sort of much slower and more passive, where she was cautious and then could be decisive if necessary. He doesn't seem to be able to uh, make decisions when they need to be done. It's more like he makes promises, like when it comes to the Ukraine. And then the uh, second thing that then comes is foot dragging. So things don't happen, especially the delayed uh, action when it came to weapons delivery in Ukraine has been concerning since Germany already suffers a deficit of trust among many most mostly mm, Eastern mm. EU allies for its close energy relationship with Russia. So in, in general, I would say he is a traditional old social democrat, a very bad communicator, and that's why his, his uh, ratings overall has slumped a lot. And interestingly enough, 
his smaller coalition partner in the government, the Greens, have leapfrogged the SPD, the Social Democrats, and are much more ahead in the polls now and much better, seen as the much better governor. So Olaf Scholz heads a, what's known as a traffic light coalition mm-hmm. because of the, the colors of the parties, red, orange, and green. So mm-hmm. it's the equivalent, basically, of Labour, Lib Dems, and Greens in coalition. In a way, yeah. What, what, <laughs> what are the terms of their arrangement, as it were? Are they public? Do, you know, do they make demands on each other mm-hmm. in order to go into coalition? I mean, in general, coalition governments is nothing very um, new to Germany. We're used to that. Mm, we have, mm. I mean, Germans have, have had that very, very often. And negotiation amongst parties being, while being in government is nothing very unusual. This government is interesting in so far as the Greens, who are much more mainstream in Germany than they are here and much more realistic and much more willing to compromise on their core goals as well, which I'll come to uh, later, which uh, they're doing now and have to do now when it comes to energy, they have played a central role in the first, first it looked before the elections last year, if they might even become the most successful or the biggest party in this coalition. Now they are the second biggest partner in it and they play a leading role. And in a way, the mm. vice chancellor, Robert Habeck, who's the minister of economic, for economic affairs, is much more present as is the much better communicator in this government. So they are, if you, if you like, the driving force in this government. The FDP, the liberals are sort of the smaller partner, also important, a bit more right wing than the liberal. Lip Dems here, and they are trying to do a more conservative fiscal policy, for example. But in a way, the SPD has sort of been dragged along by the Greens, which is very new and very interesting for Germany. So, like you say, Olaf Scholz came in. He was considered very much a continuity Mm -hmm. um, candidate, even though he was actually from the centre-left rather than the centre-right. But he was considered temperamentally, I guess, a, a continuity candidate, uh, quite dull, quite vanilla. I, I saw one commentator likened him to a doctor telling you you have to cut out salt rather than mm-hmm. a, a sort of politician, which yeah. I think is quite a, you know, the sort of the little pinched face and the yeah. whisper that he yeah. uses is quite uh-huh. doctory. And then he stunned everyone in February mm-hmm. this year by making what is now known as his Zeitwende speech, Mm -hmm. in which he reversed decades of German policy on arms exports and defense spending. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of international observers say that the last six months have not lived up to that rhetoric, that he is engaging in Ablenkungsmanöver, it's I think the German (laughs) term, right? (laughs) Diversionary maneuvers, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that's true? Do you think that's a fair criticism that you can turn the tanker around that quickly, as it were, that you can change policy and within six months suddenly be spending 2% on defence? It's complex. It's more complex than that. I think the uh, international criticism that uh, Scholz hasn't delivered on his big speech, which was a huge change in German Mm. policy, is sort of correct. But these critics very often oversee what kind of a huge almost generational project this Zeitenwende is. This is not only being able to yeah, take over a leading role when it comes to European security policy. It's also on a deeper level, the country 
has to consider the full and historic scale of past policy failures as well, which is Merkel and the SPD together, and also second to change its national mentality. And this is really the work of a generation and that cannot suddenly come around like within six months. And the other, the other level that is a big problem is, is the practical level. I mean, the German Bundeswehr, the German army is in a dismal state and the grinding pace of German heavy weapons deliveries has also to do with German military simply not having the resources it once had. I mean, one, one example, I just looked that up before we started talking. At the end of the 80s, the Bundeswehr had around 2,000 Leopard tanks. Today, they have 200 and uh, a further 100 are not working properly. It's complex, but, um, and Scholz, and I think that's one of the main problems, has been such a bad communicator communicator that he even the stuff that Germany did get right and there have been weapons delivery now a little bit late but still um, that even that sort of didn't come across as what it was so he didn't really communicate it well either. Now his party's polling has suffered I mean I don't pay attention to some of the outliers but if you look at the aggregate mm -hmm. polling it shows a very sort of distinct downward movement. Uh, mm -hmm. Interestingly, the, the, his party's polling sort of peaked just after that speech in January. Mm -hmm. That That's the, when it went to the top and then started to gradually mm -hmm. uh, fall from that point. What I find puzzling is that one coalition partner, the Greens, are benefiting from that. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see that really clearly in the recent uh, election at North Rhine-Westphalia mm -hmm. um, uh, in the state there. But the other coalition partner is completely collapsing the sort of liberals. Mm -hmm. Why is that happening? I think that has a lot to do with the way, especially over the last month, they have these parties have approached the Russia war, the Ukrainian conflict differently. I mean, as I said before, Scholz has been very reluctant to take action. He's been very reluctant to um, clearly support and and come to the uh, uh, aid of Ukraine, whereas the Greens have done the opposite. I mean, they have mm. been extremely clear, Ukraine must win this war, a phrase that Scholz never could bring himself to express uh, properly. Um, they have clearly said we need to deliver weapons really early on, which was easier for them in a way because historically they never were a part of this appeasement policy that um, the, the conservatives and the social democrats have done together. So they could, they were freer in a way uh, and more innocent. And uh, also um, they always have um, made it clear that they were against Nord Stream, this famous pipeline uh, from Russia to Germany. I remember vividly Annalena Baerbock, who's now the foreign minister from the Green Party, saying uh, in, I think it was September, beginning of September 21, so um, yeah, not even a year ago, saying in a, in a um, duel before the elections that Nord Stream 2 is a dangerous project because it makes us uh, yeah, it is, it is, it is, makes it possible for Putin to blackmail Germany. She was, I mean, yeah, people yeah, yeah. were jumping at her. They were saying, how can you say that this is a purely economic project? I mean, not even a year ago. So they have always been very clear about taking a more confrontative stance towards Russia. And that's, and they have been proven right. So I think that's one of the reasons why they're so much ahead in the polls. And the other reason is a personal thing. Habeck, who's the um, Minister for Economic Affairs and Vice-Chancellor uh -huh. at the moment, 
is the rising star on the in the um, German political landscape because he's been as a green as a member of the Green Party, been explaining really well as the economics minister what the problems are now with this gas supply shortage that Putin yeah. has sort of, and has explained really well how, where the problems are, which problem, I mean, really, especially when you normally listen to the British uh, political, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it was really surprising, <laughs> but even for Germany, how open and honest he was. He was just standing there every evening explaining what the problems are, explaining which problems he thought he could solve, explaining which problems he hasn't a solution for yet, asked the interviewers to be patient with him. I mean, it was really quite um, astonishing to see, to see a politician talk that honestly and that being so humble as well. I think that has really convinced a lot of um Germans that that's a different style of politics and that made the Greens even more popular. I think it has a lot to do with his personality. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Given that there's now this, rightly or wrongly, this established narrative that means the Greens are effectively in the public's mind, they're getting a lot of credit for anything that goes right, and mm -hmm. Schultz is getting a lot of blame for any, everything mm -hmm. that doesn't go right. Can the coalition hold? Oh, yes. I think, as I said, Germany, I mean, it, it's a normal thing in Germany, these coalitions. And as generally the political style is not as confrontative as here, parties are used to collaborate and, and also used to sometimes get the blame for something more and then the others get get more positive points and it's nothing that will make the coalition explode at this moment in time i mean there always are limits but i can't see that at the moment and that could change if everything really goes wrong in the autumn and in the mm. winter energy wise but at the moment it looks like this government has been uh, preparing the german uh, economy quite well for the crisis that's ahead yes yeah, so i wanted to ask on that w with regard to dealing with a sort of coming energy shortages, the news I read are quite positive about, um, you know, managing to reach uh, store good storage capacity, mm -hmm. um, that people are generally on board, really, with the project, as it were, that, mm -hmm. you know, they are trying to consume less, they understand the issues. So what is the government doing right in this area that, that the UK government is getting wrong, do you think? I think, first of all, they're just working <laughs> on the problems. <laughs> um, they're there. <laughs> it's a functioning government. And they've mm. been really, I mean, to come back to, to a more serious tone, I mean, they have been really working hard on this ever since it became clear what uh, Putin was up to do. I mean, if you um, take just the numbers for gas, for example, when Putin invaded in, in uh, a few months ago, Germany relied on Russia for 55% of its gas. Now, only a few months later, it's about 25% and the gas mm. storages are comfortably full. 
um, due to the fact that, I mean, down to the fact that Habeck, again, the economic, uh, the Minister for Economic Affairs has been, um, yeah, traveling from Qatar to Norwegia and, uh, yeah, found alternatives. Also, yeah. by early next year, the first of five new LNG terminals for liquid gas should be on stream. Those huge tanks have been built with record speed and, and are supposed to be ready already. I mean, part, partly uh, beginning of next year. And this is all very encouraging. And I think they will pull through and manage this rather well. And I mean, there will be gas surge, surge uh, charges. There will be, um, like he, public buildings will not be heated above 19 degrees in the winter. Public buildings and monuments won't be, uh, there will be no lightning during uh, during the night. So there's a lot of measures that ha have been already sensible stuff that has had, has had to be done and has been done. While here in Britain, I mean, cutting energy use uh, is, is just ignored. Tell me, Germans, I think, And more widely, globally, were quite apprehensive about Merkel's retirement. Mm -hmm. In a world of you know, increasingly unpredictable variables, she had become a bit of a constant. Mm -hmm. How is Germany coping without Mutti? <laughs> I think a lot of uh, Germans still miss her somehow, although her legacy obviously has been massively damaged by by all the wrong decisions i mean she took when it comes to the energy policy in germany do you think it has been seriously tarnished then her legacy i would say yes i would say yes i mean she herself has been um speaking up a few months ago um on a few occasions explaining again why she thought this and still thinks apparently that this was the right policy. It wasn't very convincing, and I do think it has damaged her reputation uh, quite mm. a lot. But that doesn't mean that people do not still see and accept her as a good leader overall. I mean, not all of the Germans, obviously, but I think overall, Scholz has been quite a quite a disappointment. As he, I yeah. mean, she, she was always trying to lead from the center and being cautious and 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 reluctant to act too quickly but yeah. and that's the difference with Scholz she did act when she felt it was necessary and I mean I personally do not I cannot see that she would have been so slow and so reluctant to support Ukraine in that situation if she had still been there I mean this mm -hmm. is obviously speculation but I think she would have she was able to take action when when really needed and she could be very quick then as well like with the Syrian refugees or with the um nuclear power plants must not always have been the right decision, but she, she did act when she really thought now it has to be done. But Schultz is more seen as somebody who doesn't really act and has to be pushed to, to things. And then sometimes also first makes the wrong decision and then has to make a U-turn again, like uh, with many decisions when it came to the Ukraine weapons delivery. So I think in a way people are still sort of missing her especially also when it comes to the EU. I mean, there's no, Scholz is no, not the same kind of leader who can pull the EU together as she could do it. And I think with the UK out as well, I have a feeling that that triangle of Germany, France, UK mm -hmm. was a much more stable geometric mm -hmm. space oh, than a sort of tug of war between France and Germany, especially when you have a slightly weaker, indecisive Germany. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Britain was a a very important partner for Germany, especially when it comes to the constant fighting with with Southern European countries and fiscal stability, etc. So, yeah, no, I mean, I think Britain in a way still missed, although uh, nobody really would want the current Britain, I mean, the current government back in the EU, obviously. (laughs) The main beneficiaries of Schultz's drop in in popularity are the centre-right, obviously, Mm -hmm. uh, Merkel's old party, and the Greens. Is there something specific to Germany and its politics, do you think, that means we have not seen the the rise of populism to the extent we have seen it in France or Italy? If I were looking at this as a script and I didn't know which country it applied to, I would think that round about now, parties like the AFD and maybe Linker start going up in the polls, Mm. but they're not. They still seem to be suppressed, and the battle is still between effectively fairly centrist parties. Mm Why is that? I think that's a that's a very precise and good observation. I think that's that's it's an astonishing fact. I think the far right, the AFD, is there, and it's also not you cannot totally neglect it. I mean, it has they have sometimes up to ten, twelve percent. I don't have the mm. exact figures now, but uh, in in the federal elections, I, it's it's not. I wouldn't underestimate the AFD. They're there. But, and that's true and that's interesting, they haven't really crossed a, a major threshold when it comes to the polls. I think this has a lot to do with the pandemic because they had absolutely no answers during the pandemic. That really lost them a lot of support uh, within the, let's say, the more center-right people who would have been tempted to support them more. And I think the other thing is now with this um, Russian energy crisis, I mean, energy crisis provoked and caused by Putin, um, I think people do understand by listening to all the attempts and efforts this government is doing that they're really working hard on the problems and there is a way forward. I mean, given that this war started only a few months ago and given uh, the huge, I mean, reliance of Germany's um, economy on on Russian gas, 55% is a lot. To be now Mm. in a situation where you can say we will manage this winter somehow, we will get through this, especially also as this whole thing, I mean, is uh, is not uh, in a, in the in a longer term. This will get better as well, because um, this energy crisis will lessen in the medium term. We have yeah, these new um, liquefied natural gas uh, tanks, and then there is um, Habex. I mean, the Greens' ambitious goal of eighty percent renewable energy by two thousand thirty that they are pushing forward at the same time, by the way, while dealing with this crisis. So, I think. Most Germans do see and understand that there is a hardworking government that really tries to tackle and solve the problems. And um, in, in a, such a kind of crisis like before in the pandemic, there is just not so much room for populism. Because, I mean, populism always only destroys things. And at the moment, it's all about rebuilding and, and changing the economic model of Germany for Germans. Let me wrap up by asking you a completely unrelated <laughs> question closer to home. Um, your columns in the New Statesman often cause quite a stir uh, <laughs> and, and go viral. And 
I see a lot of the responses are along the lines. It takes a foreign journalist to yeah. tell the truth <laughs> about this country as another foreign um, writer. Do you think there's some truth to that, that you do have a, a sort of both a knowledge but also a slight distance that gives you better perspective? And is it is it slightly offensive also to constantly be told that, you know, for a foreigner, this is very good. <laughs> oh, well, no, no, I'm not offended. I think, I mean, I'm really astonished by this because I had never intended to write a column for the New Statesman. This all started with an article I wrote, an essay I wrote for a German magazine on the state of British democracy, uh, which then really indeed went viral. And I just noticed that writing more and more of these articles and columns after the you know, Statesman nicely asked me. I was really surprised to do that. That there is, I think the, the the reason why these texts or columns go viral sometimes, I think, has to do with this deep and huge desire of, uh, yeah, of people in Britain who want objective information. Like you said at the beginning of our podcast here, I mean, there is there is no reliable, really neutral information anymore. Mm. I mean, you do mm. have the big papers that that do more or less, um, yeah. Uh, support a party line, and mostly it's the Tories. Uh, then you have the, the BBC that has, uh, yeah, is totally intimidated and very often do, does not report on the problems as they are. I mean, the mere fact that Brexit is still a taboo while it causes mm. so much problems in this country economically is, is for me really flabbergasting. I mean, I, there was a long article or long, a long piece on the BBC the other day on the dentist crisis. The word Brexit wasn't mentioned. No, it, it wasn't mentioned. As yeah, if they're scared. I mean, but the problem is, as long as you make something a taboo, you can't solve these problems. And I mm. think that is really quite astonishing. And I think if you think about, I mean, at least 50% of, of the British people who didn't want this kind of Brexit, and probably now it's even more who did yeah. never want this kind of Brexit, they just do not see, they don't get enough proper information. I think that's why they think, I mean, hopefully rightfully, <laughs> that when somebody who is German and who comes from a little bit from the outside uh, is writing something on on their country that this is more objective in a way, and that's what I'm also trying to do. It's not satire or whatever. I try to really put together pure factual information. The truth. Yeah. Uh, the truth. Yeah. It's about the truth, and you don't get the truth in this country anymore. That's what I'm also. I've been writing about a lot, and I think that's the reason why these columns very often um, go viral because people do not feel they get the truth here anymore. Mm -hmm. Annette Dittert, thank you so much for your time and your insight and your warmth. It's been absolutely lovely chatting oh, to you. Thank you so much, Alex. It was a pleasure talking to you. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day, so don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. And if you really like our little podcast family, do consider supporting our work on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. You are quite literally keeping this podcast going. Poor old Germany, Henry Kissinger is said to have remarked, too big for Europe, too small for the world. Despite the ups and downs, Germany remains a linchpin of stability on the continent and an economic powerhouse. Pragmatism and trade remain the watchwords. It has refused on the whole to engage in rhetoric that will heat up 
rather than cool down the situation with Russia or China, much to NATO's chagrin. Many, however, believe the old adage, there can only be peace on the continent of Europe if there is peace with Russia. Maybe one European power keeping its powder dry is no bad thing. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandreou. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>